Before we get started, a quick disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. A quick overview of this podcast for those of you who are new to the show. I do a monthly links post at the end of every month where I highlight all the things that have kind of caught my attention that month. And then Chris and I use this podcast as an opportunity to build out a bit more on some of the different articles and topics that sit out to us the most, as well as reviewing some of the more interesting situations in event-driven and merger arbitrage land. So I'll post a note to a link to this month's post in the show notes. But Chris, it feels like this month has really been a month dominated by mega mergers. So just a couple of Salesforce bought Tableau for a $14 billion software deal. Uh, United is merging their aerospace division with Raytheon in about a hundred billion merger of equals deal. AbbVie is buying Allergan in an $80 billion drug deal. Eldorado is buying Caesars in a 25 billion casino deal. And there's a semiconductor deal that's over 10 billion in Infineon and Cyprus. In addition to those, we're kind of approaching the end game in the mammoth T-Mobile sprint deal. DOJ blessing seems eminent and the fight seems to be moving over to the state attorney generals. So I'll leave it up to you. That's a lot of mega deals. Which ones are you kind of most interested in and do you want to talk about? I have at least some interest in all the ones you mentioned. Probably foremost, it would be Allergan and also Sprint. Your choice. Dealer's sure. choice. What let's, would you like to start let's with? Let's talk about Allergan a little bit. I think that this is an interesting acquisition by AbbVie. We've seen a number of pharma and healthcare deals this year. It's a big deal. These are companies, anybody who's done event-driven or ARB of any sort over the past half decade has seen in a number of permutations and a number of issues from short selling and fraud to the issues of tax inversions Mm -hmm. to broken deals to really all the things we look at. These are names that we've seen uh, before. Recently, we've seen a number of activists either assertively saying or looking like they might put pressure on buyers to break up deals where shareholder view from a buyer's perspective is negative. You're paying a lot of money for control premium. I like to get paid that. I generally don't like to pay it. And uh, people who would normally be short the buyer have been looking at owning uh, the buyer and trying to break up deals. In the case recently of Occidental, there was an argument that I found to be a valid argument that said we needed to structure a deal to avoid a vote simply to match in a competitive situation that situation that the alternative bidder was in. I thought that that had some validity to it. In this case, they just clearly structured it because they didn't want the shareholders to vote because they thought they might not have gotten the vote. So let me back out. A little. I, I think that's exactly right. So let me just back out. I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll remember our Selgene Bristol-Myers discussion and then our Occidental and Adarco discussion. And in both of those cases, the buyer, Occidental or Bristol-Myers came in with big premiums for assets and their share prices dropped a lot. Mm-hmm. And shareholders were not happy. And Selgene Bristol-Myers, Starboard came out and tried at the last second to kind of do an activist campaign and get the buyer vote to fail so that they could get out the deal. And Occidental's case, Anadarko kept saying, your shareholders aren't going to vote for this thing. We can't take you seriously if you have a shareholder vote. So Occidental came out and uh, avoided a shareholder vote. And that's subject to a lawsuit from Carl Icahn now. And Carl Icahn's trying to take over, basically take over the Occidental board because he's saying, you don't have your shareholders in interest. You did a deal that took your stock from 70 to 50 and you dodged shareholder approval just so you could get this deal done. So I think it's interesting in AbbVie's case, their merger clause specifically says, hey, we're doing this to 
avoid a shareholder vote, basically. And they did a deal. Their stock's down 15% on the announcement of the deal. So they definitely learned a lesson from Occidental and Bristlemeyer. I do wonder, you know, is it the right lesson? Because you're doing if you're doing things your shareholders don't like, it's probably destroying shareholder value and you're probably going to get replaced at some point. And I think you're exactly right. You you do that. And I think you open yourself up for some activism coming in in the near future and saying, hey, maybe we need to get some guys who are really concerned about creating shareholder value, not building a bigger empire here. I'll turn it back over to you. Any other thoughts on this deal? That was really what jumped out at me about that. I just think it's so interesting here because there are tons of parallels. I see so many parallels to the Celgene Bristol-Meyer deal. I think Allergan's trading about 70% chance to go through. I don't think there's huge antitrust risks here. Yeah. I think a big piece of that, that kind of 30% chance the deal doesn't go through is people are worried, hey, is somebody going to come in? Is an activist going to come in to add the build up a huge position and try to somehow vote this deal down despite the fact there's no buyer vote on that side? Can they replace the board? Can they get Abby to sell themselves? I think the chances of that are really low. Abby is a massive company. Any type of activism here is going to be a big thing. The only other thing I'll say about Allergan is I thought it was interesting, you know, it's been a long time activist and event driven kind of hotel. Shares peaked at 330 a couple years ago. They're selling at a big premium to kind of their recent price. And uh, it turns out Elliot had just built up a big stake in Allergan and is really happy about it. But I do wonder, you know, are you kind of selling two years ago, you were at 330 Botox, which Allergan owns is considered a, a really premium drug. Are you kind of selling at multi-year lows just because there was a lot of there was a lot of demand from your shareholders to do anything? And is this the right timing? I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I think that they were under a lot of pressure. The, the only other thing I'd really add is that it sidesteps from the regulatory front the big focus that regulators have been projecting out in speech after speech, which is they're really going after this overlap with pipeline drugs. Mm-hmm. They're not buying a pipeline that overlaps with their drugs in the market. It doesn't have this fact pattern where many of the other pharma deals that are out there, that is going to be a big concern. In terms of just kind of thinking through trying to kill off this deal at this point, what what justifies the spread, the kind of MAC issues you could come up with on the Botox side or on, it's already known. It's very hard to think through Max day one where all of those things should be baseline from what the buyer should reasonably know. So, you know, it's presumably uh, something they've picked over really well is the ideal time to sell for, if they discounted this all properly, the price should be kind of about right. I think for here it probably is. In terms of Max, which Max is a material adverse event, which can break a merger where the buyer says, hey, your business has deteriorated so much. Like the deal we struck is it just can't be valid anymore. Your business has done so much. Like when I look, I always struggle with pharma deals because so often everything that can be considered a Mac is disclosed in the 10K. So if you come out and they say, oh, you know, Botox sales are dropping or something or other, Allergan just say, how can you say that you didn't see this in due diligence? Mac excludes anything you already knew about. How can you say you didn't see this in due diligence? It's in our 10K. Like, obviously, it was there. So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Obviously, there, there's some, like, real tail events that could happen, but it's just tough to think it's about. It's going to be some big new FDA, big new regulatory, or big new study. And so you can kind of look at, okay, a deal's going to run its course in four months or six months, whatever it is. Kind of look at the big kind of binary events that come out if they haven't specifically carved those out by what could considered to be an MAE. It's much more applicable, though, in smaller companies or companies that where there are one or two drugs that are kind of a 
massively huge percentage of what's being bought in a somewhat more diversified company. It's really it's really hard to see at this point. Agreed. Why don't we switch over to Sprint T-Mobile, which I, I think, you know, this is the deal that keeps on going for the past two and a half years. Sprint and T-Mobile have been in on and on, on again, off again talks. I, about a year and a half ago, they announced the merger. And it seems like that they're at the end game here. They're, every day there's rumors that DOJ approval is imminent. They're just waiting to strike up a deal with Dish that will create a fourth provider to kind of replace Sprint. And then the DOJ is going to approve this and we'll move into a bunch of state attorney generals are suing to block this deal. And I think this is interesting because there are so many unique things about the deal. T-Mobile wants to argue that Sprint is a flailing firm, not a failing firm in court. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen state attorney generals sue without the DOJ to block a deal. The FCC is relying on future markets uh, in 5G to approve this deal and ignoring current competition. I'll I'll flip it over to you. What do you think is most interesting about this deal right now? The two things I'd start with is that the FCC has a very different mandate than the DOJ. So if you look at a deal that they kind of cobbled together – uh, their give was approval. Their get was things that should not be applicable to the uh, DOJ. DOJ side. We could Especially debate, rural broadband was huge there. We could debate whether or not it's a, it's a good uh, function for the FCC, but it's there. It's kind of in their ballywick. And so I think that that approval to me is one of the two big things this week, that, this past couple of weeks, that I, I thought the market kind of, uh, I don't know if the market efficiency was failing or flailing, but it kind of flailed at that (laughs) as being this hugely significant thing that now we know the deal is going to close. And the other was the DOJ is willing to approve this deal if they replace the fourth competitor in this market. But the DOJ is willing to approve any deal that replaces the loss of competition. I feel like that headline is almost a truism. It's kind of a day one thing that was true. Maybe a lot of the news that's reporting this is knowing because according to their sources, perhaps accurately, it's going in that direction right now. Fine. But the minutia is really all of the battle. That seems to be more of 10%, the 90% of the battle when some of the things you're agreeing to is, oh, have a buyer that's approaching a walk date and a seller that's desperate and a regulator that wants competition to be fully replaced. And Charlie Ergen, who's right in the middle as the guy who's seen as the likely replacer of that competition or or critical to it. It's possible that the Venn diagrams don't overlap, but you could say something that the words, the top line words are identical. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I just think it's so interesting. Like the DOJ says, they blocked AT&T and T-Mobile, which was a bigger deal than this. Sprint's a different beast than AT&T in this combination. But they're saying, no, we need four competitors. And you look and you say, how are you going to get to four? The only way we can get to four is if we launch Dish. And how are you going to get Dish? Because Dish doesn't have a nationwide mobile network, right? So it's almost like they're bending over backwards for T-Mobile and Sprint to be able to create this fourth competitor with Dish, right? Like you're going to sell to Dish and you're going to give them a great MVNO for four years. And then you're going to let them roll onto their own network. You're going to help them build out. I just think it's really interesting that the DOJ, you know, it seems like they should just say no. Like if they think you can't go forward, if they think you need four, it seems like they should say no. There's four right now. We're not going to bend over backwards for you to create create this hypothetical fourth player that will build their own network in the in five years in the future. Uh, I'm just I'm just mind boggled that that's kind of the situation we're in. Also, there's a lot more that Dish has to offer the FCC than what yeah. Dish has to offer the DOJ. In specific, there's a lot more the FCC can offer Dish than Dish can offer the DOJ because Dish is facing onerous build out requirements and. The rumors are as part of this deal, they're going to get uh, exemption from that. So the idea that those two have raced way ahead 
because their interests have so many different overlaps where the DOJ still has a job to do that doesn't have to care about a lot of DISH's concerns or the FCC concerns. Yeah. And then, you know, ever since the AT&T and Time Warner merger, I've wondered if this antitrust department of the DOJ is kind of just bending to political whims. And I continue to wonder about that here. You know, I'll, I'll let you speak for this. But uh, last week, Sprint and T-Mobile are in court in the state attorney's case, and they say, hey, DOJ approval is imminent. And you would, again, you would know better than me, but I can't think of another time where a company's lawyers have come out and in court under oath said, yeah, the DOJ, they kind of broke the DOJ's news for them. Like if I was the DOJ, I'd, I'd almost be embarrassed by that. I don't know what you think about that. Absolutely. They are highly professional. They are law enforcement officers. So they're not people who whose job is to, hey, you have this deal. I need to help it work. Let's all kind of work together. Here's Kumbaya, it's, let's do this. You're yeah. breaking a law or not. And I hate to go down or I hate to start with a supposition that it's kind of politics because there are people I tend to take very seriously who I think deserve that professionally. But there is no world in which AT&T Time Warner is a bigger antitrust problem than Sprint Timus. There's no world in which these combinations of things, especially when they're being kind of casually referred to in this way. It's very, very weird. It's very weird to speak on their behalf. It is strange tactics. You're in front of a judge at this point and a judge who's facing down, not the full might and prestige of the Department of Justice, but cumulatively, this number of state AGs, I just take very seriously. If I saw them on one side of the court, cumulatively uh, now from both parties, from many states representing a huge part of the country with a case that is kind of antitrust 101 basic traditional antitrust rationale that looks like what most antitrust cases are supposed to look like. And I just want to, you know, this might be a little bit too deep in the weeds for a podcast, but I just want to go back for a second to T-Mobile's argument. It it sounds like they're going to argue a flailing firm defense for Sprint, where, you know, if you're antitrust, you can go and say, look, we need to merge from three to two because the third competitor is a failing firm. If you don't approve this merger, they're going to liquidate. They're gone. They don't matter anymore. So just let us buy their assets, right? What T-Mobile and Sprint appear set to do is argue a flailing firm defense where they say Sprint isn't about to go away. They're not going to go chapter seven and liquidate. But if you don't approve us, they're going to be a flailing firm. They're going to be so uncompetitive. They're not going to be able to invest in 5G that you need to approve this because they're a flailing firm. They don't matter anyway. I've I've never seen that argument and it strikes me as very strange. How, How do you think about that? The standard for this whole category is extremely high because from a regulator's perspective, a liquidation where that entity ceases to exist in a competitively relevant way is the standard. They don't care about your capital structure or who profits or who losses on a restructuring. And this is a company that would be restructured in some way. I mean, it's not going to, they're not going to burn down the infrastructure. It's not going to physically rot. They're not going to just shut it down. It would simply be a different set of equity owners, which to the DOJ should be completely indifferent and traditionally has been. So boy, that for a number of reasons is about the last, I mean, that is uh, one of the last refuges that you, refuges that you'd want to to uh, resort to. Let's dive into So it's tough to, it's kind of tough to estimate what odds the stock market's putting on this deal of going through because it's tough to get to a sprint downside. Like if you're going to argue flailing firm is sprint share price downside, is it zero? Is it one? Is it two? It's tough to know that. 
And if the deal is approved, the shares probably go up. So you've got some upside there. But I would guess the market's putting on about an 85% chance of this deal going through right now. That's kind of where my math is. Consistent with the sell side and even more so the press kind of just sing-songing, like casually referencing things like it is going to get done uh, when, not if, and the AGs will all... Uh, close up shop the second the DOJ approves this. Just and, and I keep waiting for an explanation, and they never get to the because they just are asserting this. Uh, but um, and maybe they all have very good sources. But that. Uh, but I think the idea that the market's probability right now is very high sounds right to yeah, me. Yeah, and I think you and I agree that there are three risks. A, the DOJ approval seems to stem on Charlie Ergen agreeing to a deal. Which, if you know Charlie Ergen, like I believe AT and T CEO said, I would never do a deal with Charlie Ergen until I see a contract signed by him on my desk. like That's when I would start thinking about it. So there's that risk. There's the risk the DOJ just decides we can't do this. And then there's the risk that uh, state attorney generals win win in court. And I don't know, do you want to quickly walk through those risks and why we think it's more than 15% that this deal breaks? Yeah, in aggregate. And and I simply think that there's actually a deal that would satisfy one, but not all of these. Uh, And so there's three or four versions. And I might have not heard this right. There's also the risk that everybody else can agree it gets through the walk date, and then it's no longer in the interest of the buyer. I mean, oh, yeah. I you, you want to, if you're the buyer here, one of the things as you start to worry about this is to be 100% consistent with your duties requirement in your merger agreement. If everything's fine, you can be casual about that. Things are not fine right now. They have to be extremely pedantic about doing all the things one would do and then walking when they have the out in the walk. I, I think that's the thing I've actually been most shocked about so far is T-Mobile is about to go to court and argue, hey flailing firm defense. Sprint is flailing. They're going to be helpless without us, right? And I have not heard, most people at the time the Sprint merger was announced thought T-Mobile gave Sprint a pretty sweetheart deal for a firm that was struggling. And they've struggled even more since. And I've just been shocked that I haven't heard anything about T-Mobile going to Sprint and being like, look, we've got to give DISH more than we thought. Your business is performing worse. We're going to have to go fight the state attorney generals. We need to recut this. If this deal goes through, we're giving you guys $4 per share instead of $8 per share. And as you said, we didn't even mention that as one of the three risks there. But I I just can't believe that T-Mobile hasn't done done that already. It seems like uh, uh, kind of logical. And one of the reasons why T-Mobile has been as competitive as they have been was the monster breakup fee that they got yeah. in their fatal deal with AT&T. So they're very aware of how these deals come apart can affect the future competitive landscape as it has in this business. And at this point, if they're looking at a new ultra-competitive fourth player, they're going to wonder why the assets that they need to compete as one of those four is going out the door to sprint, which isn't helping them nearly as much as they thought it was going to. You have deals, not to go into detail about these, but just two things that are very much on my mind looking at this is the rent-a-center deal of the world looks very different when you have a clear legal out and your lawyers come to you and says, now's an appropriate time for you to think strategically about what you want to do. You might newly get to that thought on that day. Uh, and your legal rights are the most pure if you haven't been kind of looking at the exit ramp. And then the other one that I've been thinking about is the DOJ case that they just brought, Quadgraphic, against the uh, printing deal was another case where the applicants had the novel case. They said, sure, traditional antitrust, clearly a merger to monopoly, you block this, but these other things will happen in the next few years. And if, 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 then 
are having an oligopoly in the case of Timus uh, Sprint, in the case of the printers, a monopoly is really useful because we'll be well positioned to have more competition later. And the DOJ had no interest in that case. And, and just uh, to give some background, this is, I think it's Quad Graphics, yeah. LKSD yeah. is the uh, companies, and they are magazine printers, I believe. And they were trying to do a two for one merger with exactly what you're saying, where they're saying, look, magazine printing in the next couple of years is going away. Let us become a monopoly now. Whoever goes after this deal, on traditional antitrust grounds, depending on how the judge looks at it, because this will be decided by a judge, and this will be decided by a judge after the walk date, is going to have some substantial odds that they just win on traditional antitrust grounds, and they will either revive the reputation of the DOJ or revive their reputation as a state AG office that has done the job the DOJ should have done. And either one, politically, thinking about the politics, that is a pretty sweet prize for somebody who just has to say the kind of thing that antitrust is traditionally expected to say. I think it's really interesting that I think a lot of people have thought, hey, the state attorney generals, which it's very rare for this. I, I can't think of a situation where state attorney generals have sued without the DOJ, but state attorney generals are suing here. And I think a lot of people have said, they're suing here because they wanted a nice headline. They wanted an, a nice press clipping. And to me, if I'm a state attorney general and I look at this, I say, Sprint T-Mobile is a traditional four to three. We've got tons of work that says four to three is too, mu- is too much. T-Mobile, as you said, they're they're making the kind of novel arguments where they're arguing flailing firm and they're arguing 5G is coming. We need to get to three people. So if I'm a state attorney general, I say, I have history on my side. Yeah, I'm going against the DOJ if the DOJ approves it. But if I win this case, I'm a hero. And my career, look at this. Democrat wins in 2020. Who are they going to want to be the head antitrust person? Is it the person who went against the DOJ and won a a really high profile antitrust lawsuit? Yeah, I think you've just made yourself a candidate for that. So to me, it seems like all upside for a state attorney general to continue with this. I think that's right. And if you look at the role uh, you're competing against in these states, either senators or members of the House of Representatives in a split federal government, you don't really have people who are building legislative records to run on where they've really acted and accomplished something. They've kind of talked. And in the very partisan states where you have more and more states that are kind of more blue or red, especially in this case, the blue, but a few of these are red states too. Uh, uh, there are a lot, even Texas is thinking about joining this, which that's really interesting. You have you have crowded routes to the top and uh, you, know, you have the governor, you have the lieutenant governor, you have all these different people uh, and it's kind of bollocked up. You have a chance as AG to take a big step here and get much more than just a headline. Yep. Cool. I think we had a couple other things we wanted to talk about, but unfortunately, I've got a train that leaves in 10 minutes. So I I think we're going to have to wrap it up there unless you've got anything else. No, make your train. Great. Well, this was perfect, guys. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to everyone next month.